Hi, my name is Anita Gish, and all of you people are terrifying because I'm an extreme <laughs> introvert. <laughs> so I'm going to work my way through it, and we'll see how we go. Um, my background is a bit odd. I started in anthropology, um, worked in community projects, decided they were all completely disorganised, went to project management, decided it didn't have enough human-centred design, so incorporated a bit of UX, and now I kind of do all three. Um, I've been working in consulting in the small business space for about the last 10 years, and I've also picked up a PhD project to study that space to try and make it better. Um, and I wanted to give a quick nod to Tim Yeo, who did a speech at the August UX um, conference, and he did a really nice presentation about introverts. Uh, and that actually inspired me to sort of put my hand up and say, yeah, maybe I can do this. <laughs> um, I'm a really strong introvert. I spend a lot of time listening to people, thinking about things, and making connections in my own head. Um, and that can get really noisy in my own head. So I need to be able to step away, process, and then re-engage. Um, I've known that for some time about myself, but I've also been aware that I've never had in often times, there's not a lot of spaces and places to do that. Um, so I became accustomed to just making it work, finding my own spaces. Some strategies that worked and some that didn't. Um, so I had a few false starts, some not insignificant burnout, and decided to try and figure out how I could make my engagement better, but also potentially make other people's experiences better as well. I'm privileged to have worked and studied in three countries. Uh, it's been interesting to see the variation in what is considered normal and practical and achievable in those locations. I started school in Australia, I went to university in the east coast of the US, and then I did a master's in Canada. So if you can't figure out my accent, it's, it's, it's me, it's not you. <laughs> um, so back in my uni days when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I got my first email address and was introduced to the concept of linking computers together for collaboration. This was before Facebook, before World of Warcraft, and despite my son's disbelief, even before Minecraft. <laughs> um, my university, which was Emory University, had physical connections across the entire campus. Um, it was kind of before the internet was really, it was sort of emerging as a thing. Um, and even though the interface was very basic, it was very ugly. Um, it was integrated in a way across the campus. Um, you would have assignments in class and then you would be assigned to discuss them in the community boards. Social, social activities were arranged by the community boards. It was such an integral part of the community that the digital and the physical were essentially the same. To the extent where when people graduated they were really trying to find ways to maintain their connection. And then I came back to Australia and got a job in the public sector. <laughs> now, I know some of you have worked in government or uh, work with government. Um, I don't know if you have the same reaction, but the word trim does give me PTSD. Um, now, I realise things are evolving. It is getting better, and COVID has been part of that. Um, so I don't want to paint an inaccurate picture of life here versus there, but I just wanted to share that experience of shifting cultures and feeling like you're slammed against a wall uh, and having the expectations of what is normal and what is possible to be extremely different. 
I went from an environment where over the course of four years I can count on one hand the number of times I printed a document to one where every piece of work came with a folder as thick as my arm. Um, and the physical layout was, was sort of um, related to the interactions there. Um, it was a mid-height cubicle design, so you had privacy as long as you kept your head down. <laughs> and the longer I worked there, the more I recognized the appropriately sinister metaphor about that. You could periodically see the tops of heads like little meerkats sort of popping up for air. Um, and at the time, I thought I was just being overly sensitive um, that I would figure out this Cubeland cube experience. Um, I just never quite got comfortable there. And it turns out there is an emerging body of evidence demonstrating there are genuine socio-political pressures that are absolutely affecting office, affected by office design. For example, there's a study from 2017 by Hearst and Schwabenland looking at how open plan offices actually change behaviours and promoted discrimination against women in the workplace. Um, and while I was aware of these factors from a cis female perspective, there's of course many layers and lenses to this issue. Many neurodiverse people flourished in remote working contexts and experienced significant anxiety coming back to physical offices. There's definitely been some progress, but I think we can do more. Um, so I threw myself into these workplaces originally. Um, at first it was a three-year cycle, then a two-year, then a one-year, and I realized I was just burning out. I just couldn't, couldn't cope. So I quietly slipped away to a combination of academia and consulting, a pace that, and a style that I had more control over and really helped me center myself and regain my confidence. I started to gain my voice, and I want to use that voice to make uh, the design of space and process better. Um, and I, the discourse has really changed uh, over the last 10 years. It's not just COVID. Up until five years ago, there was this heavy emphasis on physical presence, and we heard about that in a few speeches today. It was common to see people competing in first in, last out, as a way of demonstrating dedication and importance. People were often rewarded based on what they were seen to be doing, rather than on their actual output. A cluttered desk was a visual sign of workload. And that physical presence extended to corporate culture and engagement. After work drinks were not mandatory, they were expected, uh, especially for anyone interested in moving up the ladder. Now, I quite enjoy socialising and getting to know my colleagues, but it isn't an equal playing field. If you live more than an hour from the CBD, or if you've got babies and young kids, the act of going out in an evening and then being able to get home to act to your life is a significant <coughs> sacrifice. There's also a definite, there was also a definite stigma for people with flexible work arrangements. They were not seen as career driven or committed and there was an expectation that these were temporary arrangements and you would go back to being a good normal worker at some point. And there are also women, usually. You would only get it sort of as a maternity leave enticement to come back. Um, and it was actually rare in the context that I worked for a dad to admit that he was leaving work to go and get the kids or to actually be contributing. Um, so the emergence of cloud happened sort of five to seven years-ish, sort of it, where it sort of hit the mainstream. Um, and the marketing hype was around work anywhere, anytime, um, which I thought was awesome. I loved the idea, but I really questioned how it was going to work in these cultural context that I've seen. The experience from an end user perspective was 
mixed at best. There was a lot of excitement, but there was also a lot of fear, confusion, and resistance. Adobe, Microsoft, and SME accounting packages like Xero led the charge to cloud, but they also kind of pulled the security blanket out from small businesses. They, the pricing structure and the product offerings went from desktop to online in quite a short span of time, and many small businesses couldn't quite keep up. So for example, um, this was one of my clients that tried, that thought it would be an awesome idea to move to cloud without thinking about the concepts consequences for their architects and their project managers. Um, so they went to zero a cloud accounting system, but there, is, there was no accounting, uh, there was no project management software that would adequately meet their reporting needs for their clients. So at the time, uh, one of the project managers very proactively created a spreadsheet and he used that to manage his projects. And then someone else copied their spreadsheet and they ended up with a whole bunch of spreadsheet babies all over the place. <laughs> and none of these were compatible with the timesheet software that the company had chosen to implement. So this lovely accounts lady would sit, and she was also not particularly comfortable with online and cloud, so she would print out the spreadsheet and go through it line by line and hand calculate what she needed to do to invoice the client. It took her a day, a month. The amusing thing is that the, the architects had actually sent her this document. They hadn't sent it as a spreadsheet. They sent it as a PDF. <laughs> the calculations that she was doing were outside the printer margins. <laughs> so all, all we had to do was reformat the way that the information was exchanged between the two departments, and we cut out a day a month per project. So what's the moral of the story? Data is collected in formats that are fit for purpose for particular parts of the organization. And they're shared across the organization, but they have to be translated, interpreted, and sometimes recreated in order to make that work. And this doesn't happen just once. This happens constantly. People are constantly accessing di different bits of information all across the organization at the, at the same time. Um, sorry, don't know what's happened. Um, so then, the big C. Where are we? Sorry, lost track. Um, then COVID hit. So we're looking at people having these theoretical discussions about what we could do with cloud, what we might go in the future, but you know, let's keep it all on premise because we like to observe and control and, and see our workforce. And then COVID came and all of a sudden, we just had to figure it out. Um, I was also in Melbourne, longest lockdown in the world. Um, and jobs that people thought were mandatory to be on site, we discovered other ways of working and we figured it out. Um, it, was nor it became normal to see people sort of in their pajamas or with their cats on the, in, on the monitor. Um, or the famous one was when the news presenters, kids came in uh, in the middle of a broadcast. Um, because who can, who can imagine doing a national news product production from your bedroom? Um, it was just crazy. But, um, but it's, it was interesting to see through this process what is possible if we let it. Um, so from a, from a design perspective, as we're moving through sort of into this post-COVID phase, 
I mean, COVID was obviously awful, but what can we take about how we changed the way we related to each other and the way that we worked so that we can now create potential for hybrid workspaces? So I think there's three areas that we can contribute in. The design of physical and digital spaces, and I explicitly put those together because if we imagine them together and we design them together, they will be more integrated and we will be able to have this sense of on campus, off campus. I mean, even today, we're all here and there's people at home and they're having, it's not the same experience, but it is an experience that it's a collaborative experience and we can work together. And I think we should keep that. We can look at the design of process. So who needs what, when, how, how do we relate to each other? How do we design things that we can access them together? Sorry, this keeps, I keep waving it around, it keeps changing on me. And design at the individual work practice level. So what can we do on an individual level um, to allow a bit of flexibility, to allow the human into the work practices? So from a physical, uh, digital perspective, um, in a post-hybrid, uh, post-COVID context, this was one of the architecture firms that now they had previously been fully on site, but during COVID went remote uh, and have, have maintained their hybrid practices. So they were sort of working together, co-designing, some in the office and some away. But when designing these relationships and these interactions, not all views are equal. So on the one side, we've got mostly a group of people together. We've got this one you know, remote person off to the side. So that remote person can either dominate the conversation, sometimes you get these giant screens and there's just this looming head, um, or they could just be this quiet voice and you can mute them. Um, so the re relationship is not equal. Um, a more equal relationship is where you've got everyone with their own screens, um, even though it feels like a bit of digital overkill. People can, it's a flexible arrangement, so if, pe if someone needs to go, they can go. Um, Having zones for different purposes within an office and also in the world allows people more flexibility in how they interact. I remember when they first brought in the quiet carriages, it was the best thing that I could imagine because before that there was so much friction around people saying the trains are quiet spaces or trains are noisy spaces. They can be both um, if you divide the spaces up. And it's not perfect. It's still a work in progress. Um, but for me, commuting an hour, an hour and a half, that's now product, productive time, as long as I've got good internet, which is not an equitable solution, an equi equitable situation in many parts of the country. It's fine in certain, Sydney and certain areas, but um, I live in regional Victoria, and trying to commute between regional Victoria and more regional Victoria, there's not a lot of internet there. <laughs> so designing products that understand that infrastructure and can work with intermittent or poor internet connections is an equalizing factor. So going purely crowd, purely cloud is not actually as democratic as it sounds. It assumes you've got the high speed urban connections that designers have. When you go and you go to these more regional and remote spaces, their experience with cloud technology is different. I once was, I was working with a bookkeeper a few years ago and she said she loved cloud, she was pro-cloud. But there was one time she lost productivity for a week because her, the farmer next door plowed through her internet connection. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, at a process level, there's always a tension between flexibility and innovation, consistency and compliance. 
And to get the mix right, we've really just got to focus on what's important, why do we need it, and is there a clear and practical reason for the structure that we're putting in place. So I like to focus on what do we need to know and what decisions will it influence. If it's not influencing a decision, you don't need that report. And then how do we get that information? Is it something that we standardize? Is it, is it fluid? Um, and that just depends on the context of the, the organization. Oops. My big um, mic drop thing, I guess, is I don't think data flows anywhere. <laughs> um, people are constantly talking about workflows, data flows. I don't, think, I, think, I don't think data goes anywhere. We access it more like rooms in a house. So it's collected in one place. The sales team might collect some information. And the accounts team sort of poke their hand through and they use the appropriate bits that they need for their context. Um, but it sort of sits within and around an organization and it doesn't, it, there's no sort of stream, streamlined process that that goes through. Um, so one, one example is um, uh, the accounts team should be able to, for example, create a list of outstanding invoices for a client and the marketing team should be able to create a Christmas list at the same time. That was a data, that was a data scenario that took six months to resolve. <laughs> Um, so the introduction of remote and hybrid works has really brought the previous assumptions about work environments and work practices to the forefront. I don't think we can, we can't really physically monitor, rely on physically monitoring staff productivity. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that can only be positive for the relationship between employers and employees. Organizations that have tried to go back to their old habits or tried to bring those habits into the digital space with keystroke monitoring and other things, really feeling the brunt of the social counter movements like quiet quitting and the great resign. Other organizations embracing this time of flux and experimenting with new technologies are, and the successful ones are capturing that talent and really sort of taking this as a moment of curiosity, exploration and um, potential. And finally, I'd just like to say, especially as leaders, I think it's okay to introvert. I think we've been hiding in the, in the wings for a long time. Um, we probably will continue to hide there because it's what we do. <laughs> um, when I was younger, I blamed myself for being too sensitive, unable to adapt, un, unable, un, inflexible. But through my research and my consulting journey, I've come to understand that the design of the physical space and the leadership styles within different organizations have a massive impact, both on myself and on my colleagues. So it's not just me. And we can work towards flexible work practice that can be successful for different kinds of workers. And if we deliberately design spaces and processes that are flexible and responsive, um, we'll retain staff and I think everyone will have a better work experience. That's me.